0: I can't tell you the number of relationships that professional relationships, personal relationships that I have, I have, I have repaired mid psychedelic journey. (laughs) Um, I I do these often enough where like (laughs) the people I work with, like my shamans that they know that like about four or five hours in, I'm going to like leave the room from the rest of the group. And I'm going to take out my phone and just basically apologize to 10 or 20 people. and it's done wonders. It's done wonders for me because in the, especially with psilocybin. Yeah. But it can happen with ketamine as well. Um, you just, you're able to, to take some time out and really imagine the world from, from their perspective. And when people hear that, and they know that you've considered their feelings and their thoughts and taken it seriously, the tensions reduce and you can have a much more productive conversation.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Field Tripping. Today we talk about the politics of Silicon Valley, why you may actually want to roll on Shabbos, and techniques for integrating psychedelic experiences with our guest Greg Ferenstein. But before we do that, let's hop over to some news to trip over. A study out of Denmark found that psychedelics such as psilocybin and LSD can increase a person's emotional response to music. In this study, researchers had 20 healthy participants listen to a short program of music comprising Elgar's Enigma Variations and Mozart's Laudate Dominum before and after a controlled dose of psilocybin. After each playthrough, they had the participants rate their emotional responses according to the Geneva Emotional Music Scale, a questionnaire designed to capture the richness of musically evoked emotions by rating the response in categories such as wonder, transcendence, and peacefulness. They found that the psilocybin increased the participants' reported emotional response to the music by an average of 60%. I can't wait to find out what listening to Afroman's because I Got High does to the experience. An article published yesterday in Forbes by reporter Natan Ponyman asked the question if mysticism is posing a problem for psychedelics. In the story, Natan interviews a number of voices from Johns Hopkins researcher and field trip advisor, Matt Johnson, to University of Amsterdam researcher, James Sanders, and another Hopkins researcher, Dr. Albert Garcia Romu. Those interviewed did not seem to have a unified perspective on mysticism with Sanders noting that the use of the mystical experience questionnaire could unintentionally impose a mystical lens on subjects and may not be necessary for the therapeutic outcomes, a perspective supported by garcia romu They noted that the insights that lead to meaningful change can be achieved without spiritual considerations. The article concluded with a comment from founder of the Beckley Institute and previous field tripping guest, Amanda Fielding, who said, I do think that society would be better if it introduced an element of the spiritual. Finally, a study out of the University of Oxford found that use of psychedelics is associated with lower risk of heart disease and diabetes. To examine the relationship between psychedelic use and physical health, the researchers examined data from more than 375,000 Americans who had participated in the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, an annual survey sponsored by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Participants reported whether they had ever used the classic psychedelic substances DMT, ayahuasca, LSD, mescaline, peyote, San Pedro, or psilocybin. They also reported whether they had been diagnosed with heart disease or diabetes in the past year. The researchers found that approximately 2.3% of people who had used psychedelics reported heart disease in the past year, compared to 4.5% of those who reported never having used a psychedelic drug. Similarly, 3.95% of those who had ever used a psychedelic reported diabetes in the past year compared to 7.7% of those who reported never having used a psychedelic. Although the authors were not able to specifically express the cause of the reduction in risk around these diseases due to psychedelic use, they posited that psychedelic substances such as psilocybin could be used to assist in promoting positive lifestyle change conducive to good overall health. And because we know that there's no group of people more focused on living forever than Silicon Valley tech types, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to transition into today's conversation. And speaking of tech, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't downloaded our app, Trip, I highly encourage you to do so. Short of having a therapist with you in person to guide you through your psychedelic experience, it's got everything you need to have a positive psychedelic trip as well as to help you adopt positive lifestyle changes that seem to improve cardiovascular health, like meditation. Now, joining us today is Greg Ferenstein, founder of Frederick Research, a consulting firm focused on psychedelics, admired writer on technology and policy, and a scientific advisor and advocate for psychedelic medicine. His work to highlight the importance of mental health practices within the tech industry has made a huge impact that didn't just help Silicon Valley, Greg's voice on the benefits of this due diligence has inspired and helped so many people. He has published pieces about his own personal experiences with psychedelics, bringing credibility and relatability about these medicines to the media and mainstream. Greg, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. That was a very nice introduction. Thank you, (laughs) Rodan. My pleasure. Uh, It's well-earned, by the way. Um, But picking up on the theme mentioned in the intro, I noticed that you have once once wrote an article about how mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, helped you rediscover Shabbat. For our non-Jewish listeners, Shabbat is the Jewish Sabbath, the equivalent of Sundays for Christians. My discovery of rediscovery of Shabbat mostly came from finding it funny to wish people a good Shabbos on a Friday, even if they weren't Jewish, and then having my five-year-old son think we were saying shalat shalom because of our tendency to use shallots when making salads. Uh, so tell me about how psychedelic drugs and Shabbos go hand in hand in your life.
0: Uh, so on the Sabbath, people wish each other Shabbat Shalom. Uh, and my ritualistic practice of, of doing psychedelics on Shabbat, I lovingly call Shabbat Shroom. Um, and, and we get friends together. Uh, we meditate on uh, like a moderate to small dose of the medicines. And then we just have a normal Shabbat dinner, but it's more heart-opened. Um, and lively, uh, and it's become one of my favorite practices uh, just for me personally and to make new friends.
1: That's awesome. Do you incorporate any of the Jewish traditions like the brachas or anything along those lines, or it just so happens this tends to be a a Friday night ritual and therefore Shabbat and and that's close enough?
0: Yeah, like it's, um, I don't know how familiar people are with kind of like secular Judaism, but like a, a lot of people when they like me, when they went to the coasts, um, they wanted to hang around with other Jews who, who got their like, like neuroticism and, and sarcasm. And so it, Shabbat dinner was just a really good excuse to, to bring like-minded people together, both Jews and non-Jews, for a traditional Shabbat dinner. They're pretty um, spiritual light. Sometimes we say a couple prayers, depending on who knows them at the dinner. Um, you know, if like we have a rabbi who just happens to be there, then then they'll say something. Um, but it's it's mostly just an excuse for for a long dinner where people stay there and don't look at their phones.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's a good thing, and that's actually one of the subjects I want to talk about. But 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 before we uh, go down to that, what are your thoughts on um, the comments coming out of Natan's article about the role of mysticism uh, and, and psychedelics? Uh, you know, Shabbat fundamentally for most people, I think, is more about it's more of a traditional culture and getting family together, I think, at the first instance in most situations. And I think there's like an element of mysticism, which is people like doing the prayers. Like there's an element of the tradition. There's an element of the ceremony involved with that, which to me leans into the, the mysticism. And then I think at the next level, which is probably where the fewest people participate, is a genuine, sincere participation in Jewish religiosity and, and prayer to God and all that kind of stuff. Um but uh, but I'm curious to know how you think about the role of mysticism and psychedelics. Uh, so so my
0: main job is that I uh, I'm the founder of a, a mental health innovation uh, research consulting firm Frederick Research, and I am one of my clients has me doing a, a case study on uh, mysticism with one of with one of their clients, and it's this fascinating story of this woman who says a a, a profound psilocybin trip gave her this mystical experience of unity and oneness. Um, and she became a better manager as a result. And all of a sudden, her employees and her subordinates started liking her more. And, they, and, and now she got a promotion as a result. Uh, and for me, I, I think mysticism does play a role in psychedelics and, and, and people's lives because, and I say this as a scientist, it's because they say mysticism matters to them they can come up with reasonable explanations that, that are compelling. And as a scientist, it's not my job to say this person isn't right or they have the burden of proof. It's my job to listen to them and, and to, to add some precision. But if they tell me it matters to them and other people find it compelling and it's helping people, then as a scientist, it, it's, it's my job just to figure out why, not to doubt them.
1: Right. And... and... What have you figured out in terms of the why? Well, in this case, it's she. her mystical experience
0: was she felt a profound sense of unity with other people. Before, she felt very kind of angry and detached and judgmental. And that was leading her to get mad at subordinates when they turned something in late. And then when she had this profound feeling of connection, she was like, well, maybe I should be more empathetic and listen to them more. And so as a manager, she was more forgiving. Um, she, you know, maybe she found out that one of her subordinates was late because they're having a real problem in their lives and she was more apt to listen to them. And so it's just very practical. She felt more connection. So she was nicer. She gave people the benefit of the doubt. Her employ, her subordinates liked that and gave her better reviews. That's a very clear cut step from mystical, profound experience to a
1: therapeutic benefit in someone's life. Right. So that, that sounds reasonable to me. yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of questions spinning out of that. One is and, and for everyone, uh, did that did that story make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I, I think it absolutely makes sense.' It's, it's very concrete and, and direct. It's like, oh yeah, you have a mystical experience. you feel you know that everybody is connected. you feel closer to other people. as a result, you treat them nicer. Um, presuming you know you treat people who you care about more. Uh, and good things happen. It's like, it's not its not rocket science, to be quite honest. It's uh, actually quite logical. Yeah. Uh, and, and in some ways infuriating because, uh, you know, and, and just so everybody um, understands that Craig and I have uh, connected in a few different platforms initially through Twitter, then getting introduced through Matt Emmer, uh, our VP of healthcare ah, practice. I love Matt Ed- Emmer. Can we, get, can we, can we, can we af- make that official? <laughs> we, ad- we adore Matt Emmer. Matt Emery is one of the great people in the world. But uh, part of the conversations that I've had with Greg and Matt has had with Greg, at least on a professional level, was about potentially doing case studies and looking into what role psychedelics uh, could play in the workplace and, and what we can do to potentially open the minds of human resources, departments, benefits providers, all that kind of stuff towards Enabling access to ketamine-assisted therapies, which are perfectly legal and acceptable right now uh, in in healthcare programs and insurance and reimbursement programs, because for whatever reason, it's still hard to get people to think rationally uh, uh, about this. Um, yeah. And so, this is like a, a perfect example of, yeah, it's not hard to see why psychedelic therapies can be potentially very beneficial. And and we're just talking about how she felt better and happier and, and more connected to people, you know. Let alone trying to parse into people who are struggling with depression and anxiety and, and, you know, at least more tangible mental health challenges, um, you know, and how just helping them get over their depression and their anxiety, let alone feeling connected to everybody could have a massive impact on the bottom line uh, for these corporations. So uh, it really is a, a really important conversation and interesting and what, what do you see in that landscape? I mean, I think part of your role is consulting and advising and collecting data around how we can turn, I think, a lot of the the medical and therapeutic applications of psychedelics into something that's going to get more mainstream adoption. Um, particularly, and, and this is a particularly the unique problem for the United States given the, the, I'll say a nicely mess of a healthcare system that you have down there. Um, you know, uh, where most healthcare coverage is private pay or through private insurance, whereas most of the rest of the world has um, some sort of nationalized healthcare system. Um, but how, how do you think we do that? What do you think the steps are to actually get to a point where we get companies saying like, oh, no, this is real, this is important. And I, I see the value in providing access to these therapies that have not have been traditionally, you know, cast aside or not given much consideration.
0: Well, so I, I can get into the, some of the scientific research that I've done for my other client on this, the, the third wave, um, which is an, uh, uh, an educational uh, psychedelic company. For me, I, my personal experiences with myself and, and my friends really informs what I talk about next. So if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll throw the question back to you. I mean, have if you, if you ever had a, a psychedelic experience that in some way you think improved your relations with any of your colleagues at work ever?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And I can give more detail about it if helpful. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. As we were in this process of, of leaving Aurora, there was some tension. I wouldn't say it was a dispute. We weren't in a fight, but there was definitely some tension between us and the management team at Aurora. And the entire time we felt, and, and even looking back, I felt like we had taken the mature steps. We had been very open, direct, honest, candid about everything we were doing. Nothing was a surprise. And so we were genuinely st- taken aback to some degree by the the level of anger that was directed to us through this experience. Uh, and then, you know, this was during the time we were leaving Aurora and actually ha- when we had discovered what was happening with psychedelics. Um, and so having a lot of excitement and interest in trying to do something with psychedelics, but never having had a, psychedelics, a psychedelic experience at that point, we decided to try it. And during that first psychedelic experience, I remember what happened was um, I became Intimately aware of understanding the emotional place that the Aurora management team was in. I could understand why they were angry at us, even though I could still point to all the things that I think we had done appropriately and correctly. I had a very embodied sense of empathy. I put myself in their shoes in the most literal sense of the word. Like I was actually feeling what they were feeling during the psychedelic experience. It was the truest definition of empathy and that level of awareness of how up to that point in my life, I think I was 39 years old, you know, I kind of understood at least on an intellectual level, you know, what empathy meant or like feeling bad for somebody kind of thing when they're going through a hard time, I realized like i had never really Felt empathetic, and through the psychedelic experience, I felt true empathy, and that opened my eyes to a whole another level of you know reality and how it is to interact with people and to understand people. Uh, and it's been one of the most powerful lessons I've taken from truthfully life, but certainly from psychedelics. And
0: from that experience, did did your interactions with the the management team change at all? Did you talk to them afterwards?
1: And specifically, raise the the nature of the experience but yes i had a lot more compassion for understanding their anger instead of trying to deflect it and say it was inappropriate i was like okay i get it you know and and i think truthfully it's it's been super helpful for every relationship uh, that i've had because i've i've worked with uh my my coach my spiritual guide whatever uh, you would want to call him erwin perlman for for many many years and he always talked about how like all emotions are valid And I was like, no, that's stupid. Not all emotions are valid because what if they're based on incorrect information? And the truth was, yeah, in this case, I could make the argument that their emotion was based on incorrect information or an incorrect perspective, but their feelings were real. Uh, And I couldn't deny the fact that their feelings were real. And it really showed me that... um, logic and emotion don't often, uh, overlap that like you can still feel anger, even if it's illogical and you've got to do something with that anger. It just doesn't go away because someone logics you out of it. Um, and so that's enabled me to take that into every relationship in in my life, to be quite honest.
0: And, and, you know, you're the, you're the CEO of a, of a very respected company. I mean, are there ever times where you see two employees butting heads and you wish they could have the same kind of empathy that, that you felt for Aurora?
1: Probably. I can't think of a specific instance, but yes, it certainly makes sense that I would have those motions. Fortunately, you know, um, I haven't been privy to too many of those experiences because I think we've done a good job of hiring probably uh, much more emotionally evolved people than maybe I was at that instance. Um, so, you know, most res- most disputes get resolved at a, at a very, um, I think integral level, um, that doesn't necessarily get to the point of heated emotions. Cause usually that level of anger that I felt in that psychedelic experience was the mm-hmm. result of like resentment and holding on to things and things building and building and building and building, whereas. As with any relationship, if you just let the steam off as it comes out, um, as opposed to letting it build, it, it becomes a, a much more elegant way of re- resolving disagreements.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, I'm very similar. I mean, I can't tell you the number of relationships that per- professional relationships, personal relationships that I have, I have, I have repaired mid psychedelic journey. <laughs> um I I do these often enough where like (laughs) the people I work with, like my shamans, they they know that like about four or five hours in, I'm going to like leave the room from the rest of the group. And I'm going to take out my phone and just basically apologize to 10 or 20 people. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And it's done wonders. It's done wonders for me because in the, especially with psilocybin, but it it can happen with ketamine as well. Um, you just, you're able to, to take some time out and really imagine the world from, from their perspective. And when people hear that and they know that you've considered their feelings and their thoughts and taken it seriously, they the tensions reduce and, and you can have a much more productive conversation.
1: hundred percent. It's funny. It's like the exact out. Al- opposite of alcohol. My wife and I used to joke that uh, after a night of drinking, we weren't sending the apology text while drinking. It was the next day when we were apologizing for the behavior that we weren't sure if we actually did or not, or every once in a while had to send the, I don't know what I did last night, but if I did anything to offend you, I'm sorry because I have no idea. Um, So that's just one more example about how uh, psychedelics are much preferable to alcohol on some levels.
0: So taking the experience which you just You just mentioned and and my own personal experiences um i began to 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 do research for one of my clients that i've I've talked about again paul austin and third wave um and uh we were looking at uh lsd and psilocybin microdosing and the the the, the mechanism of, of how it actually worked and uh the kind of the stories that you hear about in the press um that are sensationalized it's like you know a bunch of like machine learning engineers are, are like injecting LSD and it's juicing them better than caffeine. Yeah, and, and when I started talking to people, just in the way I'm talking to you, by the way, this is, this is, these are the same questions I ask in my scientific interviews. Um, they told me a very different story. They're like, psilocybin makes me a lot nicer person. I become more empathetic. I listen more. And people like me as a result. I mean, who know that being nice and empathetic um, was it was a good way to, to just be a good colleague. And, and what the research shows, and we've done some statistics to quantify this, is that psilocybin makes people more appreciative or they e- express that they report they're more appreciative. And as a result, in, in, in the very instances where they may get mad at someone because they're late or not on time or producing very poor quality work, they are more empathetic. They say, is there something going on in your life? Can you tell me about it? Sometimes they do. And then they have a really nice conversation and they find a more productive path forward. Where if people were just efficient and they were mad, then that would
1: result in conflict and, and counterproductivity. Totally. Uh, that, that absolutely makes sense. How, how, did you, um, how did you embark on this career? How did you discover your interest in psychedelics, both personally and then turning it into a, a professional pursuit as well?
0: Exact same thing. Um, I was at a festival um, where a lot of Silicon Valley people go. Um, and, uh, my, my lawyers have told me that I can't mention time or place when I do psychedelics. So that's, that's why I'm sometimes cryptic and, uh, someone gives me ecstasy and all I know really is again, is alcohol. So I think I'm going to like go dance at the clubs. I'm, I'm much younger at this point, And I'm like, you know, maybe going to hit on some girls and dance. Yeah. And all of a sudden this warm feeling comes over me and I, I just start pouring my heart out. And I am appreciative. And I, was just, I was just a radically different person that I didn't understand. I liked that person. Other people liked that person. And it, after many years of investigating this, I realized that a lot of the things that my, my job was, which was journalism and economic policy, federal economic policy, the core root of these things was mental health both myself and for the people i was supposedly trying to help at scale through congressional legislation really when i when i began to investigate it mental health was 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 the source of a lot of problems economic and personal and so i completely shifted i was like i i want these substances to be legal for myself and the people that i love and i know that the policy things that i still care about at scale could also benefit from these medicines and so i just dropped everything. And I, now I'm dedicated to it.
1: Wow. Uh, without, uh, impugning your lawyer's advice, roughly how long ago was this? Uh, over a decade. Over a decade. Wow. And up until that point, I mean, in, in, researching for this conversation, you had been a writer, uh, doing a lot of work on, on technology and, and all that kind of stuff. How did, how did you get on, on that path, um, to be bucked off by, a, a wonderful psychedelic experience?
0: Uh, so I, um, I always believed in science and, and, and progress. Um, and when I was a PhD student doing work in political psychology at the point, um, I started to to find out these, these tech guys who no one was paying much attention to had a lot of the same political beliefs that I did about optimism and progress and and efficiency. Uh, and so, um, I, I, moved to Silicon Valley to study my subjects more closely Okay. Um, and that's how I got embedded in, 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 the tech scene. And then from the tech scene, they do a lot of psychedelics and, 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 and that's how I shifted from there.
1: And, and I read a little bit about this, but I would love for you to just expound on, you know, what that political philosophy is in a little bit more detail. Cause it was really re- interesting reading, uh, about how you described it.
0: Uh, thank you. You know, it took a, it, it took
1: a decade of my life, um, can you sum um, that up and, into about three minutes, please? No, I'm just kidding. Talk about it as much as you want. I'm very curious about it. I'll,
0: very briefly, because it is, it is somewhat different than the, the work I do with psychedelics, is that um, it, was, it was me plus colleagues at Stanford at the time, uh, David Brookman and Neil Mayhotra, Um We began asking tech executives what their beliefs were. And we found out that they weren't quite libertarian and they weren't quite kind of Bernie Sanders liberal. There was something in the middle um and for instance they were for higher taxes and spreading the wealth through things like basic income uh but they didn't weren't fans of regulation or or labor unions and so the the more we asked them questions we realized that what they wanted was is everyone to kind of reach their creative potential uh, to everyone everyone to be able to contribute and so the government took on a, a much different function it was an investor in citizens it wanted them it wanted to invest in science and education and health and and, and to be able to be civic. Um, and so that's where you get things like they, they, they like funding for scientific research and charter schools. Um, that's the kind of policies that, that that tech executives often promote from a policy level uh, that happened within a two-party system in America to fit within a fraction of the democratic party. Um, and, and, and so we were able to kind of get precise on how, how these good Democrats were liberals, but they were, they, 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 they they were fond of different politicians than your typical progressive.
1: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And, and, you know, as, as I was reading about it and listening to you talk about this right now, it's like on so many levels, it's actually consistent with my kind of perspective that the the role of government is, is mostly to help people amplify, you know, their, their skills and their abilities and, and create impact. Um, you know, and 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 so I often find myself flopping between um, a very left-leaning progressive policy perspective and libertarianism, which is on the one hand, it's like, I, I want people to be free to make their own conscious decisions and not, you know, and there's a, a huge amount of bureaucracy we've created, much of which is of zero value. Like the entire securities law regulations right now is of, I think, zero utility for the planet. Not entirely, but it definitely is 90% useless and maybe 10% useful. And it's just kind of built on and built on and built on instead of like re-examining the entire system, you know, they've just kept modifying it by nth degrees. And so we've got this monstrosity of a system for securities law, for tax law, for any number of things. And it makes, you know, just running a business, doing what you want to, you know, incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive to do it. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, I'm also not like a, a gun-toting Republican, where it's like my land, my rights. You know, <laughs> I get to do whatever I want, and so there's a a, a challenge in trying to reconcile those those viewpoints. Um, and I think the way you articulated it is 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 a good way to do so. And I've never really seen it from that perspective. So, so thank, thank you, you for very much for sharing that. Do, do you still, uh, with the benefit of time now? Um, well, let me clarify something. You had indicated that it was a kind of political philosophy that you had as well, um, and, and I guess maybe that's what spawned the interest in it, uh, but maybe I'm paraphrasing that. With the benefit of time, has your perspective changed on whether that is a good political philosophy to pursue, or do you think there's different political avenues that warrant greater um, interest and, and support?
0: Uh, so one of the things that psychedelics did for me, um, is they made me much more apolitical. Um, I, I have, I guess I'll answer this by saying half of what I do, half of what my consulting firm does is politics. We work on legalization and, 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 and policy change at the state and the federal level. Um, I have come to believe that mental health is, if not the most important issue, uh, one of the most important issues. And so I've become just very policy specific. When I look at the root of economic problems, when I look at the root of of, 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 of civil discord, um, I know that people are anxious and depressed and scared. Um, and a lot of those things can't get solved until people are given the support they need to feel safe and, 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 and their best selves. Um, so a lot of the economic and, and the other things that my, I, my colleagues in Silicon Valley are still doing, I love them. I support them. If they need my help, I, I offer it where I can. Um, but I'm a hundred percent focused on, 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 on mental health. And and maybe after that's solved, <laughs> If we can do it in this lifetime, then I'll then I'll look at the other issues. Cool, thank you.
1: One question: I I, I was at the code conference two weeks ago. Uh, I had the privilege of posing a question.
0: Everyone knows you were at the code conference <laughs> because <laughs> you asked Elon Musk about psychedelics. By the way, every the thing that everyone knew and wanted to ask him, and you did it. So thank you.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Um, and his response was totally spot on. And actually, I thought pretty thoughtful. Some people were pretty critical of his response, but at the meat of the question, which wasn't specifically about psychedelics because he answered that in a sentence, uh, was like, you know, I I think deep down what we're talking about, which is like, how do we address humanity's challenges? You know, what, what actually creates progress? Um, but the, what I found myself deeply wrapped in thinking about what is, was, what is in fact progress and what does the world look like if we achieve the goal that you set out, which is, you know, mental health, if we can address anxiety and depression uh, and all of these things such that everybody is working from a place of safety and security, what does the world look like? How, how is it different? You know, is it actually different was the question I actually found myself asking because I I got into this conversation a little bit with Sam Harris uh, who was there as well. And he rightly pointed out that we can't operate in in peak state. Our biology does not support being in peak state all the time. That's the kind of environment that leads to addiction and destructive tendencies. So if it is by our nature to swing from peak state to not in peak state, you know, as long as there's always that fluctuation, then it feels to me like there's always going to be space for anxiety and depression and jealousy and all of these negative emotions. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, Maybe that's not the case, but... um if those never go away, you know, even if it's just like a smaller swing, you know, can we actually solve the problem or is this like the essence of, uh, what it is to be human, um, to swing between peak state and not peak state. And during those swings, there's a lot of shit that can happen good, bad, or indifferent. Um, and so, you know, maybe we're, we're, we're minimizing um, the calibrations, but it's still the same conversation. Uh, and, and I don't know, I, I haven't come to a. Sl- Actually, I'll, I'll share my one potential, um, idea towards the end, but I'd be welcome to your, to know your thoughts. No, which is share,
0: like- share. I mean, there's a conversation, share.
1: So the the place I came to was that I'm asking the wrong question. Of like the question that I've been been asking, the the way I've been saying it in my head is: to what end? To what end is all this work? How does the world look different? What have we done? Right? You know, if I if I look at the people who are super into psychedelics, I don't see a lot of people giving up their cushy lifestyles and heavy consumption. So it doesn't necessarily address the environmental problem. People may be more supportive of environmental policies, but like you know, getting at some of the crux issues, a lot of things don't change. Um, So instead of, so anyway, so I kept asking myself to what end is all this work? And then I realized, or like, "To what does the world look like if we cure depression, if we cure anxiety, if we do all of this kind of stuff. And then actually I was on a podcast yesterday um, called Into the Multiverse. And I was talking about this exact subject and it, it dawned on me that the right question to ask is not what does the world look like? The right question to ask is what do we want the world to look like? That is what we should be pursuing. Um, And so right now we're like, oh, psychedelics will fix all these problems. Um, And and I think they will. And that's why we're doing the work. And I think a lot of people will be happier and healthier and lead more meaningful lives. And I think we'll have a platform to address some of the more vexing, challenging issues if we can address some of these baseline fundamentals for sure. but we should really be asking, like, what are we working towards? What, what is the end goal uh, of all of trying to make life better for people? Um, and uh, and something I haven't had a chance to think about, but that's how I'm going to start approaching the question is like, what do I want the world to like look like? What do I want people to feel like? Um, and then I think we can work back to that. And inevitably, psychedelics is still part of that conversation and that equation. But uh, it's not just like, oh, psychedelics will fix these problems. You know, Without having an intention of where you're trying to go, you just inevitably create more problems that you didn't anticipate. So that's kind of where my thinking is right now.
0: I could throw the same question back to you. Do you think that psychedelics personally for you um, and with the people you care about and you surround yourself by, have, have you seen glimpses of the way the world should be? as a result of the way psychedelics have changed things for you?
1: I don't know. I I don't think I've had glimpses of how the world should be. I think I've had glimpses of, you know, a lot of much more transcendent, peaceful emotions, you know, not as much time in anxiety, which makes me, a better parent, which makes me, I think, a better business partner, it makes me a better spouse. And those are all the aspects of psychedelics I love. And it's wonderful through the work you're doing and the work we're doing that we can enable people to have these really transcendent things. But I keep coming back to that's an individualized experience and how that translates into the communal uh is still unknown for me. I don't think it's bad. Don't get me wrong. I don't I think it's all positive, but it's still unclear to me as to whether we're addressing the root cause of some of the problems that we talk about um you know as as truly challenging, you know, species uh threatening, planet threatening kind of challenges from from the environmental uh, onward. Um so So yeah, so on an individual, yes, but on a, on a planetary community basis, no, it hasn't given me those insights, but then again, my, you know, I'm, I'm still relatively novice when it comes to psychedelics and there's still a lot of learning yet to be done. If you're a novice, then, 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 uh, that's a high bar for
0: novice. Um, I, uh, I spent a lot of time with the, the grandmother plant, ayahuasca, uh, asking these very questions. I was curious too, um, And the answer she gives me, or at least I think about when, when I'm, I'm, I'm sitting with her is it starts at the individual level. Yeah. Um, and that, um, what we change in ourselves ultimately is a glimpse of, of what happens more broadly. And when I think about, um, the research that we're doing around psychedelics in the workplace, it's had me reflect on what you had talked about earlier, this idea between, I guess you were talking about with Sam Harris, peak performance and kind of disease states, Peak experience in disease states. Yeah, peak, peak experiences in disease states. It's a it's a it's a dichotomy that I think is 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 kind of unhealthy for the psychedelic research. Um, there's this belief that psychedelics take you know a whole bunch of healthy, privileged people and just juice them up a little bit more, and that that's what we use psychedelics for. And in the research that I do, when I talk to people, it doesn't matter how rich, it doesn't matter how 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 privileged or fancy, or whatever they're doing in life. When I look at them, they all have serious mental health problems. And they're using psychedelics to to address these. And when they address burnout, depression, anxiety, fear, you name it, they become more productive at work. I am yet to meet any individual. And in my time here in Silicon Valley and as a journalist, I've been fortunate uh, to meet many of the great innovators, I've never met someone who was mostly in a peak performance state. Right. Almost everyone, including myself, exists in large degree in what we would call a disease state. Um, and psychedelics, when when we alleviate that, I become nicer. I become more open and optimistic. My work gets better and I have less conflict. That benefits me as a as a colleague. And I also
1: think it benefits the world. Yep. I a hundred percent agree. It definitely translates into the individual experience and you can see how that starts to kind of flow out, um, and affects other people and elevates other people uh, as well. You know, uh, and the, and the place I got to, um, in my thinking about it, which is, you know, all of three weeks old. uh, So lots of room for, for evolution of this is that, um, if if this is like the pendulum between like uh, peak experience and whatever the bottom uh, of our current experience is, and I think psychedelics have the ability to show us what, you know, greater peak is and minimize like how far down we go into like the, the negative states, for lack of a better term, you know, as that evolution continues, the the pendulum is going to continue to swing, right? And such that I think ultimately what it means is that humanity evolves in a direction where we can spend more time in peak experience and peak experience doesn't necessarily mean adrenaline. It means like uh, experience of love, experience of bliss, experience of beauty. You know, these are all experiences that like we, we've, we experience to some degree, but it's very intense and overwhelming. Like when you experience the truly beautiful, you can sort of appreciate it for a few seconds and then you got to emotionally turn it off because it literally becomes overwhelming. Same with like someone's so loving on you. It's like after a while, like, ah, I can't take any more of that. And I think what the evolution is, is that no, of course, like we can have more love in our lives and we can be in a state of loving more and we can be in a state of beauty more. And that is the evolution of humanity. That's the next step up on the wrong. You know, if we think about consciousness on wrongs where humanity is currently at least the, to us, the known top. And we look down on monkeys and dolphins and all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, we become whatever's looking down at us next, like from above and like, okay, that, that seems like a, a logical conclusion to me. Um, and that kind of nicely ties it up in a bow. I really like that. You know, the one idea of progress. I mean,
0: I, spent a decent amount of time thinking about mm. utopian philosophy and all that stuff and i, I like that. the the idea that it's not just like a logical or a scientific state but an emotional state uh that whatever we consider progress in utopia involves a more intense degree of emotions of beauty and love well that's an original i think got an original idea on your hand ronan <laughs>
1: Thank you. I I can't take credit for it. Uh, I I think I've learned it mostly from Irwin, but uh, I've now parsed it and plugged it in directly into uh, psychedelics, and and, but now understand it on a a much more real basis, and that's been part of my evolution and and experience. So, um, but I I would say that's true. What's true? No, I mean when I when I think
0: about like one of my goals with psychedelics, and I I work personally with them, not just just professionally. Yeah. Like there are the majority of the emotions that I have, I have access to is like anxiety. Um, and <laughs> it's my nature, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, and I, 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 try very intently deliberately to have more emotions of appreciation and love. Um, and uh, you're right. If I could experience that just more regularly <laughs> at, 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 at the trade-off of anxiety, um, I have a feeling Uh, things would be better off the world would be a little bit better at least the the Greg orbit of the world would be better
1: I think that's fair have you ever we we talk about anxiety and depression um I mean depression we think of as a state anxiety we generally think of as an experience I think Mm -hmm. um have you ever thought about the fact that maybe anxiety is not bad That it's something to be learned from, that there's information contained in that anxiety that is there for us to parse out of it. So instead of, and and don't get me wrong, there's no criticism because I run away from it as well. Because it's such like, much like beauty is like such an intense experience that you can't stand in it. Anxiety and depression are such intense experiences. They're just harder to get away from. Um but it doesn't mean that they 're necessarily bad they 're just a different state of discomfort, and from that discomfort, there may be knowledge and insight and awareness and things we're meant to see um I'm just curious to know if you 've ever looked at it that way
0: a hundred percent um and if if I can say that this is uh this is uh this is the closest thing to what readers or, or listeners will will understand what it's like to be in my head when I'm having a, a very high dose psilocybin and ayahuasca trip. Um, and in this case, they don't look like you, it's more spiritual entities. Um, but there are people, entities coming down and saying, you're running away from anxiety. Have you thought about reframing it differently? And I'm like, well, no, anxiety is horrible and I want to avoid it and it's painful. And, and, and they say, well, let's consider it how it's beneficial. And There's information contained in anxiety. It's your body trying to tell you something. Uh, so yes, I have, I I have done quite a bit of work trying to learn how to love anxiety and it is, it is, it is difficult.
1: It sure is. I, I like to go back to, uh, Tom Robbins who, uh, says, give me life, all of life, the miserable as well as the superb. Uh, you know, if you can learn to love the things that are so uncomfortable and so miserable, um, how freeing can that be? you know, everything becomes enjoyable.
0: Say the author one more time.
1: Tom Robbins. Tom Robbins. Yeah. The only advice, and this is to every listener out there, when you read Tom Robbins for the first time, you got to give it at least 50 pages because the, the nature of his writing, the arc of his stories is so different than most conventional writing. And people are like, what the fuck is this? Uh, And then give up, but you have to power through those 50 pages. And once you do, you'll get it. It'll click in your brain and you will be like, Oh my God, this is, this is magical. Um, Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. And, but I think that's the trick of psychedelics. Um, to some degree ketamine, I think to a greater degree psilocybin and ayahuasca is they really help you reframe emotion. Um, I can't, there's a, there's a wonderful author that I can't remember her name, but she wrote a book called the upside of stress. Okay. And I think in, in a, in a way, that's what psychedelics do. Uh, what, 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 what this author from this, this university professor from Stanford try to do sober psychedelics do in an, in a chemically enhanced state is they teach your body to reframe and appreciate stress. Anxiety is just a form of stress and to learn from it. Um, and it's a lifelong, very difficult practice. It's like, it's not just a, it's not just a, let's think about stress differently. It's like, it's, 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 it's in my body. It's in my bones. It's, it's every, it's, it's, it's the way I breathe. Um, and 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 so doing that is 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 quite a skill.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I like I often think about stress as just being mostly holding on to emotions that we can't get let go of. So it's like picking up a weight. We all feel intensity of emotions at various points, but you know, we unlike most people who pick up a weight who eventually put it down because they don't want to hold on to it anymore. When it comes to our emotions, we hold on to it for some reason. We we want to keep it. Because we think we should or we have to. I don't know why we do it. And, and that's what creates stress, right? That's what we embed in our body. Uh, and then what I found with psychedelics in my personal experience is that it actually forces the release. You know, if you're holding your arms up with that weight, the psychedelics are like, we're going to put that down now. Um, and it's like, we're going to let the emotions that you've been holding on to go. It's not that like stress is gone. It's the stress is actually a result of just holding onto on to things too tightly. And now you can let them go and, and it's really powerful. And I've actually found during some of my psychedelic experiences, my body going through the emotions of release, like crying or gagging, but I wasn't actually gagging and I wasn't actually crying, but my body actually making the motions um, like I was, I was doing it. Maybe I was actually doing it, but it, I didn't feel like I was crying. I didn't feel like I was going to throw up, but my body was doing that. It was it was pretty pretty powerful and and very cool to sort of watch it all happen. You know, for you is on.
0: it a, is it a release or is, see? For me, it's not a relaxation. It's um it's an intensification. It's uh, yes, I'm I'm holding something back, but I'm holding something back that is very powerful.
1: Um, for me, uh, I'd have to think through the different experiences, but the 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 most visceral one that comes up for me was. Feeling like I was letting go of a whole bunch of emotions that I was holding on to, like unprocessed emotions, sadness I should have felt but didn't let myself feel, anger that I should have felt but didn't let myself feel. And it was just, I've always held on to it. And so, like the process, the feeling I had quite literally was that it opened up a part of my brain, a part of my mind that is usually closed off to a large degree, a very feminine part of my brain, you know, in terms of energy and it let go of the emotion and feminine, not female, right? Like it's logic is very masculine. Emotion is very feminine, not male, female, but just in terms of thinking about the energetics. Um, and, uh, and so I felt like it was just like a huge emotional release, um, for me. Um, but I have to think about other experiences and in, in terms of that way, um, for, for me, it's partly release,
0: but it's also like, I'm like my anxiety. I keep my anxiety at bay by keeping myself busy and fidgeting. Um, And it's just because it's really, really unpleasant and it can take hours to process a single bit of information for what anxiety is trying to tell you at any particular point. And like, I got stuff to do. I have clients. They want things done. I don't have time for this. And so to, first of all, take a whole bunch of time and second of all, feel a whole bunch of stuff that is emotionally very painful uh,
1: on a regular basis is, (laughs) it's just, it's just hard. Uh, No doubt about that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and there's like the, I guess, the inherent contradiction of it's got to be felt, you know, the emotions are real, they can't deny them they're there. It's just like, uh, I just don't want to. Right. And so we put it on the shelf and we put it off and we put it off. It's like laundry, uh, until it overwhelming. And, and then, you know, sometimes I think most of us are like, uh, just to eventually get annoyed being like, fine, I'll deal with it. And you carve through the laundry and get it done. But then every once in a while, you know, it piles up too much and it falls on you and you can't get out and you're kind of stuck. And so that's my laundry theory of depression. Um, I like that. no, it's really good. I don't know. I got it Cause I, I, am looking at, I'm like looking at laundry right now.
0: <laughs> um, and, and, and to get back to the point of the things that like, we're exploring, um, me and you, like, one of the things I really love about my job is I'm paid to spend a long time listening to people, not as a therapist, but as a scientist. And it doesn't matter who I talk to. Everyone, everyone has these tear jerking stories of fear, and loss, and grief that haunts them daily. Yep. And they bring, that, they bring that to work every single day. And, and the stories you hear about psychedelics is them just like giving themselves maybe 10, 15 minutes if they're microdosing and meditation to just listen to it. And just a little bit of listening to that emotion before they come to work radically changes them because we don't we don't see we see the colleague that that's late on our project that's a little short with us um, that's just not very nice or distant or cold and we don't know what's going on and you know because I'm a little judgmental or a lot judgmental like i don't take the time to really think about where that comes from and so what i like about my job is 100% of the time 100% of the time there's a story there's a story behind that
1: yeah yeah, yeah. The, the the trap I find myself falling into is like I've got my shit too, but I get my work done right, and that's where the judgment comes from, um, which is entirely unfair. But that's often the, the voice that comes up in my my head. You know, these are all the, the lessons that I think we're we're trying to learn, and I think psychedelics are um, a great way to uh, start to learn them or accelerate the learning process.
0: And and that's what I'm excited to do with the the research that I'm doing with third wave and maybe others around reframing mental health at the workplace and psychedelics at the workplace is really about compassion. Um, And just finding ways to, 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 to allow people to be more compassionate um, and to bring more compassion into the workplace, because um, it's not only a, just a more pleasant way to do things. It's worth a lot of money. If workplaces could be more compassionate, they are like radically more productive.
1: Yeah. I, you know I, You and I know that. Um, but even within me, there's like a concern of like, there's compassion that can breed... It's not the word I'm looking for, but it's the one I'm going to use because I can't think of it. It's like laziness being like, if there's no expectations um, on people because everyone's so compassionate and understanding for all the reasons you didn't get what you needed to get done, done, you know, the concern is, is that nothing will happen. And it's kind of like, in my mind, um, the the challenge between uh, self-improvement and being self-loving which is like, if you love yourself, like, why do you need so to work out so much and, you know, be so good at work and all that kind of stuff. And and the way I've, I've resolved that is like, it depends on what the nature of the motivation is internally, which is if you're doing it because you want to grow wonderful. If you're doing it because you're running from fears and anxieties and shames and traumas, that's the wrong re- reason to be, you know, seeking self-improvement. Um, and, and that's how you balance self-love with, uh, with growth. And so it's kind of the same question on a, a community level within a business, which is like, yeah, compassion is wonderful. Um, but people, I think, would get scared that you're going to just tolerate um, laziness, you know, ineptitude, um, negligence, all that kind of stuff. And, and so that's probably where a lot of the pushback, if it exists, comes from.
0: I I agree. And it's, you know, it happens to me every day. And, and I think, especially in the tech industry, uh, or tech like companies of which field trip is, and and I, or my clients are, there's a, there's, there's a constant rush to do more and to scale more and and because that matters. Right. And, 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 and I, I just know that, that theoretically, I believe that I, but then I read stories and I, I listen to people of where people took time to be more compassionate and projects got done better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't, and I, and I confess, I don't fully understand it. I think if I fully understood it, I, 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 I wouldn't be in the camp that I am now, which is closer to you, which is like, get stuff done. Don't bother me with your stuff. Take care of your shit and then come to work. Um, uh, it, but it's an exercise in, in coming to believe that. And I like that. Does that make sense? Mm
1: hmm. I've long believed that the word professional is the dirtiest word in the English language because oh. it means that you're supposed to separate, you know, who you are from who you are at work and that is an impossible task. Um and uh to, exactly to your point, you know, I I, I know I'm like I'm talking I'm outside out both sides of my mouth. On the one hand, like I get to like this point of like being like do you deal with your shit at home and come to work and get work done? On the other hand, like I'm a really big believer that like we're the same person who walks in that door and walks out that door just because we're in our house with our kids or at work doesn't mean that we're not dealing with the same anxieties, the same pressures, the same traumas, the same stuff that we're carrying every day, but somehow we're supposed to ignore it for the hours of nine to five uh, and somehow deal with it on all the other hours. And it's not a fair request and it's not, I I, I think to make of people. Um, So yeah. Uh, But on the other hand, I get it. I, I, totally want to be super compassionate, but I also want to get shit done. And, you know, until we resolve that inherent conflict, not enti- inherent conflict, but somewhat conflict, um, we'll keep going back and forth on this.
0: No, it's definitely a conflict. And, and it's one that I struggle with And you can even tell like, this is, this is my anxieties. Like this is my anxiety response. I, I clench my hands. Um, we both, I think at least I do, I travel around in the, in the psychedelic underground for a lot of my inspiration and personal work. And there are a lot of like just profoundly unproductive people in that world. And they've gone so far towards the deep end where they don't have standards that they they haven't been able to to take these medicines and grow them as they've they've needed to. So I think that fear is is right. I've seen it when people err too much on the side of of unconditional compassion, where they don't expect anyone to to help someone else in need. Um, And that's I think that's the struggle of building a psychedelic business. Yep. is, 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 is taking these very like ethereal kind of hippie worlds, but putting them into, to the mechanisms of capitalism and efficiency.
1: It's, it's tough. It is. Uh, but I'm a big believer. And it sounds like you are as well, that like, if we can do that, if we can figure out how to do that, we're going to create a much more, I'll use this word consciously powerful world. It's going to be a good thing. Not easy to get there, but these are the problems that we're tackling. And, And these are the conversations that I think, you know, that's, you know, even though I can't point to the podcast being a great source of revenue generation for us, it's like, if one or two people listen to this conversation and start thinking about this kind of stuff and they start talking about it, and then you have not just Greg and Ronan talking about it, but you have an army of people, whether using psychedelics or not, talking about these issues, then I think real things are going to happen. Um, and in terms of like that,
0: that, that's one of the reasons I started following you on Twitter, um, is because you're kind of at the forefront of this. I mean, psychedelic has been in the underground for years and it's, you know, it's it very small circles. It's relatively exclusive because it's just, it's a very scarce resource. Yeah. You know, all my psychedelic guides in the ground and the underground, they're full. They can't take more clients. Yep.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and one of your colleagues who we've already, we've already gushed over once before Matt Emmer, you know, he We've had these discussions before. It's like how do you how do you take these things and then scale them? There's so many logistical problems. Scaling these to millions of people. Um and that's that's the challenge that you have ahead of you at Field Trip. Right? But I think that's why people are so interested in what you're doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Um Switching topics a little bit a question I had, um, because for people listening, I, I not only want to engage, um, you know, their, their analytical, critical thinking minds, but also hopefully learn something about psychedelics, um, uh, and how to use them most constructively. Uh, wondering, given your psychedelic experiences, what do you do as part of your integration process?
0: Um, yeah, I will preface this. So I'll briefly just tell you what it is. So I, I built myself an API. Okay. Um, so uh, I have um, kind of a, a voice activated shortcut on my phone. Um, and I can take journal notes. And and that gets logged into a spreadsheet that I can then review with professional guides. Um, that is also hooked into my task management software, okay. Asana, which I use for myself. Okay. So I talk into my phone, that gets logged into a spreadsheet, and this gets put into like to-dos with due dates on my phone. And that's how I manage it. Cool. Um, and, and the reason I do that is because my particular... One of my particular mental health struggles is I have a, a pretty severe sleep disorder. Okay. Um, and so I, I'm just tired and exhausted. I have a, I have a very bad memory. Um, And unless I immediately write something down and give myself a to do and plan ahead of time, it won't get done. And so I've, 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 I've I've had to take these, these steps for me in order to deal with my particular challenge.
1: Gotcha. Um, Uh, That's really interesting uh, that that's your technique. I mean, that was part of the foundational elements of Trip. Our app is that it's supposed to enable easy voice recording. It doesn't translate into um, you know text. We don't take that and convert it into text. But we want to give people a platform to very easily record anything that comes up during a psychedelic experience. So you can go back and, and log it and pay attention to it and, and work from it. Really? Uh, yeah. That, that was it. That was like the core functionality of Trip when it first launched. It's now much more robust, but yeah, totally spot on. I like yours as well. We should look into taking those notes, translating that into you know something that can be documented in writing. So it's a lot easier to share. Um, but yeah, that's exactly it. That's a great idea. I want to try your app. Can All I try your app? Yeah. Tripapp.co. I'll send you a link afterwards. Oh, all right. and, and that, that was not a paid promote, I guess it was a paid promote from me, but, uh, Greg's genuine, genuine enthusiasm was sincere for everybody listening. Um, this is sincere. uh, I'm curious to know just given your role in tech and, and this is switching off of psychedelics altogether but it is still very much on the topic of mental health is having been involved in Silicon Valley and having probably dealt with a lot of the people who are creating the issues right now in terms of mental health and Facebook mental health and Instagram what are your perspectives on what's going on there you know I've 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 looked at Facebook and for a long time you know if 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 the internet doesn't get any better than Facebook, I will think that the internet's impact on the world was net negative and not net positive. Uh, but I am hopeful that we'll get better at using the power of this interconnectedness in a much more constructive way than than we have with Facebook. But just curious to know what are your thoughts on what you're seeing happening right now with Instagram and mental health and all the amplification uh, implications of social media and uh, mental health. Um, so.
0: I come back to my original realization, so so this particular topic, mental health, politics, Facebook, Instagram was something I spent a long time on. Um, and I don't think the internet is necessarily good or bad. I know that when I'm high on psychedelics, I am not checking social media. I have a lot of anxiety about whether people like me on social media, yada, 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 But when I have dealt with my shit in a, in a profoundly healing psychedelic journey. The last thing I care about is how many retweets I got on my last message. Psychedelics help me use the internet in a way that I think is better, but only once I've dealt with my stuff. Right. And I don't think any algorithmic changes or regulatory structures is going to do anything Until people learn how to deal with social media best for themselves. And speaking personally, I use the internet best when I'm feeling my best. And I'm feeling my best when I do psychedelic assisted therapy.
1: That's a great answer. Um, And... You know, I, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, there. There's no easy solutions to what's happening. Well, actually, no. I will ask this: like, do you think there's a, a political solution that needs to be involved with these big companies, or do you think that's just creating more headache than it's worth?
0: Um, I laugh at this sort of thing. Like, I again, I, I had to stop it for years. The idea that members of Congress who barely understand technology can write a regulation that is going to magically make the internet better then the smartest scientists and AI professionals on Earth is just laughable. If I were if I were Mark Zuckerberg, if I were Mark Zuckerberg, I would just I would give fifty members of Congress just a hundred percent cart launch authority over the entirety of Facebook and watch them fail spectacularly at anything they wanted to do. Yep. These are insanely complex problems, and the idea that anyone has a solution, let alone people that don't understand the technology, yep. is 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 arrogance.
1: Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. I came at it from a different perspective, which is Sorry. regulatory. Like uh, regulatory fixes can be an option, but people are so poor at drafting regulations. You know, there's so many. The precision of drafting and thinking has to be so precise that I have almost never seen any law or regulation that doesn't didn't have severe unintended consequences. Um, and so, it's really just kicking the can down the road, being like, we'll solve one problem, but we know we're opening up another one. And it's just like, and that's how you end up with securities acts that are this big and tax acts that are this big. You know, you're just chasing uh, an, an inevitable problem. Um, so that's how I kind of flipped that between being uh, very liberal minded in terms of being a progressive, but also libertarian being like laws are not the way to fix the problem.
0: I 100% agree with you, but it was psychedelics that helped me came to this realization because I used to be in like the big government camp. Um, and then the more I researched the laws that, that I, I literally, I was architecting. The more I began to fear what I was writing because the unintended consequences of what I didn't see were, were severe. Yeah. Um, and it took psychedelics to give me a solid dose of very painful humility before I started to move towards the deregulation camp. Not because I don't, not, not because I necessarily want that because, I have a healthy fear of what I don't know.
1: Right. Uh, on the topic of regulation, and I'll let you go after we explore this last subject. What is your prognostication for the legalization and regulation efforts, and, and what would you like to see the format be? Um, you know, we just talked about how laws can be very, create very unintended consequences, but we also do want to legalize and. I'm generally an advocate for legalize and regulate um, even though it seems to be somewhat contradictory to what I was just saying as opposed to just blanket legalize and have a total free-for-all in part because, you know... um, if you just do a total legalization then there's going to be an overindulgence and it's going to create a backlash and all that kind of stuff so sort of a more tempered approach to broader access seems to be the sensible approach to me but you're probably much closer to those conversations and have thought about structures more than i have so curious to know your thoughts on that uh, so i
0: i'm giving you a biased opinion i am paid to change laws right or influence laws um and so um I believe in an informed choice regulatory framework where we don't tell people what they can and cannot do, but the government helps ensure that the information they're getting um, is the best information and that they're not coerced. I don't want the government telling me that I can't do a particular substance, right? I don't think that's good for science and I don't think it's good for healthcare, but I think about people like my family members who could be coerced or pressured. And I want to make sure that that when they go to a doctor, they have the best information to make the decision that they want for themselves. And so the regulations that I am personally writing, I am architecting, is that the government would help collect information. They would have standards of informed consent to, 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 to demonstrate that when a patient takes something that they understand what's going on. And then the doctors collect information, both good and bad, of what happens when someone takes the drug?
1: That sounds like a marvelous plan um but watching what happened with and this is like part of the critique of of the internet and social media is like we see it with the vaccine, which is it really it really is hard to get to an objective voice that there seems to be. A coherent rallying cry around. I mean, I'm I'm very much pro-vaccine. I'm vaccinated. I think most people should get vaccinated. I think not getting vaccinated is a foolish thing, but I can understand why people who don't want to get vaccinated have genuine fears about vaccination because depending on what articles you're reading, your information worldview is going to be very different than mine. Um, And I don't know how to resolve that problem. Neither do I. (laughs) (laughs) One step at a time, I guess. I just, I just
0: know that the right now federal regulators, the way laws work is federal regulators get in trouble when something goes wrong. They don't get, they don't get in trouble for the opportunity cost of of not moving fast enough. Yeah. And when I think about all the people and it's a lot who have died because they can't get access to the same medicines that I have access to, there's a, there's a worry about leading with fear.
1: Even though that's not a terribly uplifting point, I think it's a really powerful point to end this podcast on. So I am going to say thank you, Greg, for joining. I've loved this conversation. It's been delightful. I look forward to yeah, having you more. Um, uh, with you, uh, both professionally and personally. Yeah, this was a delightful conversation. I know it was a lot of me talking, but I really enjoyed your stories
0: where you're coming from and the, the way you've weaved your personal transformation into a business that I've gotten to know. And everyone's very like heart centered and everything. So it's from what I can tell it's,
1: it's working. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and I'm glad you did a lot of talking because that's the point of this podcast. It's not to hear my same shit everyone's heard over and over and over again. It's to hear your things. Um, so thank you for being a part of it and looking forward to many future conversations and and maybe participating in a Shabbat room someday soon. Totally. Awesome. Thanks, Greg.
0: Bye, internet. <laughs>
1: I'm sure it comes as no surprise that it delights me greatly every time I get to introduce a new person to the writings of Tom Robbins. And introducing Greg to Tom Robbins offered a little bit of extra delight for me, in part, I think, because of just how similarly Greg and I see the world. Of the many things we agreed upon, though, the thing that stood out the most to me was our conversation around the political perspectives of Silicon Valley types. What I appreciated about it wasn't that I seemed to share a political perspective to tech titans, rather that it reminded me that conversations around policy have multiple dimensions. We often get sucked into perspectives of left versus right, which often boils down to how high taxes should be and how many social welfare programs there ought to be with the occasional red herring about gun rights or abortion rights we rarely get to talk about what the point of government or policy is. Isn't there something elegant about thinking about the role of government as being to maximize the ability of people to express their creative and productive pursuits and passions? From that framework, we could have many different ideas about policy and regulations, at least I think many more than we have now. And that's only after thinking about this for two hours after our conversation. And while Tom Robbins is the first to criticize politics for being merely a compulsion to preside over property and make other people's decisions for them, he also notes that true liberty cannot come from political action either at the polls or the barricades, but rather evolves out of attitude. If anything, it results from levity. Think about that for a second. A government whose primary function is levity. What a world that would be.
0: Hey Ronan, I just got out of a long-term relationship and I, uh, I'm wondering if you have any tips on how I can put myself first now that I'm not in a relationship. Um, it's been a while and I'm having a little bit of trouble. Thanks.
1: How to put yourself first after coming out of a relationship. That is a good question uh, and a challenging one. And, um, you know, for me, when I've come out of relationships and I can only speak from my experience on this, I never had a problem putting myself first. What I had a problem with was uh, getting over in the case of a breakup that I didn't want to happen, uh, the hurt associated with it. And in the case of a breakup that I did want to happen, the guilt associated with it. And I think in many ways working on those two issues will give you the freedom to put yourself first. When it comes to getting over the guilt, I think the important thing is to recognize that guilt is really just a form of anger that you don't have the right to express as a Uh, you know, a good Jewish boy growing up. You know, the the stereotypical form of guilt was when you stayed out too late and your mom mom stayed up. And when you got home, she told you she was worried sick about, you know, the fact that you missed curfew and and it caused her so much stress and anxiety. And what you felt was guilt, but what you really were feeling was anger. What you really wanted to tell your mom was to get lost, leave me alone, let me do what I want, stop trying to control me. Um, And very often coming out of a breakup, People feel the same thing. I know I certainly did coming out of a breakup uh, about 15 years ago where I felt very guilty about it uh, until someone pointed out that what I was feeling was actually anger, that my ex was controlling me, not consciously. She wasn't doing anything. She wasn't even talking to me. I was sort of imputing uh, her emotions into my head and those emotions telling me that she was hurt and angry and that I should feel bad about it. Uh, And what I really wanted to say was stop making me feel bad for making a decision that was right for me. Um, similarly, when it comes to the hurt, the important thing to do with hurt is to feel it uh, and let it go. Uh, and obviously, it's not always appropriate to bring that to work. So sometimes you have to find techniques to be able to put it in a box and put it on a shelf for a little while until you have the time to go home and let the hurt come out and feel it. And that means crying. That means yelling. That means doing whatever you need to do to get the hurt out of your system. And I think when you open yourselves up to letting go of those two key emotions that often come up following breakups, you give yourself the opportunity to put yourself first, to live your life how you want to, uh, to be open and present to future relationship possibilities or just having fun. Um, So those are my two cents on how you put yourself first coming out of a relationship. As a quick reminder, you can record your how-to question for us and we'll play it on the show. Just go to speakpipe.com slash fieldtripping or you can email us your questions at fieldtripping at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Also, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and Harley Roman, and associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, Macy Baker, and Tyler Newbold. Special thanks to Cast Media, and of course, many thanks to Greg Ferenstein for joining us today. To learn more about Greg's work, check out his firm, Frederick Research, as well as the work he is doing for the tech industry at t4a.org. That's T, the number four, aorg